Before we dive into chapters 4 through 6 with Devore, I've just got a couple of announcements. Thank you to everyone who took the time to complete our 2021 listener survey. Your feedback means so much for our current content and our vision moving forward. I've gotten some good suggestions for books to cover in the future, your thoughts on discussion live streams, and overall awesome feedback on what we're doing here at Outer Rim Reads. Like I'd mentioned, everyone who completed the survey had the chance to enter a raffle to win a free Outer Rim Reads t-shirt. So the winner of that giveaway is our incredible patron, Doug. I hope you enjoy your new shirt, Doug. You'll be getting that in the mail soon. I also want to give a big thanks to our patrons who make this show possible. Your continued support means the world to me, and be ready for some new benefits coming to the Patreon. If anyone would like to join our Patreon family and get access to some awesome rewards, you can do so at patreon.com slash outerrimreads. And as always, I want to give a massive shout-out to our patron at the Lothal tier, Simon. Now for our Searcher Reading segment. Last episode's question was, We've entered into a totally novel era of the galaxy. The Jedi and the Republic are in a golden age. Galactic expansion is taking shape. Technology we've taken for granted in the Skywalker saga, like Bacta, is just being introduced. What are you most excited about at this stage of the galaxy, and why? On Discord, Doug said, For me, it was the prospect of long, multiple-episode storytelling. It was reminiscent of the Legacy of the Four series, where I didn't know how many books there would be, but I knew it was going to be a long and interesting set of connected stories. Sturm replied, For me, it's learning about this Jedi Order and how they operate within the Republic. The Jedi are clearly very different from what we've seen in the past, and I like the quote, Golden Age title they've been assigned. The way they dress, the way they deal with threats, their individuality, all keep me wanting more content. They are the top dogs of the galaxy and seem to work incredibly in unison. They remind me of Greek gods. Unstoppable and, like, gods. Each Jedi has such a personality and is incredibly well-written. And on Twitter, Sithy Minutes said, Bacta for sure. You can tell the galaxy is just grasping the possibilities of the tech and knowing that it will be used to heal Vader from near death as well as Luke and other legends just makes any Bacta conversation take on such an uplifting tone. Thank you all so much for these responses. I'm really looking forward to hearing even more about what you think as we continue through the season. With all that said, let's get into episode 42 of Outer Rim Reads. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode 42 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through Star Wars novels across the canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In today's episode, we'll be discussing chapters 4 through 6 of Light of the Jedi, and I'm joined by the host of A Larger View of the Force, a Star Wars podcast, Devor. Devor. How are you doing this evening, man? I am doing good. Can I just say for a moment, because I, I don't know like to what extent listeners will know this, like we're doing this basically over Zoom, and th- it was a little bit surreal like watching you do the intro after having listened to it for like 
however many months it's been. I hope it wasn't disappointing. It was not, no. I'm not watching myself while I do it, so I don't know if I take on a whole different persona while I'm doing the intro voice, but... <laughs> Uh, but I was I was talking to you off air about you know how I've been listening to your show for a while and uh, I've I've really been meaning to to get you on to talk about whichever book we're covering on but you know it is kind of surreal to to finally you know be talking to the host of another fantastic podcast and I'm just I'm super glad to have you on to talk about some Light of the Jedi today. Yeah, I'm happy to be on to talk about it. This is it's a very good book to do for uh, for your show. Uh, I think you have a lot of fun getting through it all. I know the first three chapters uh, that I've recorded have have not been very fun. It's been a lot <laughs> of just darkness. So I'm hoping that, or at least the the chapters that we have today are a little bit more hopeful. But before we even talk about any of that, for any of the listeners who aren't familiar with you or your Star Wars journey, could you talk a little bit about how you came into the Star Wars fandom and then a little bit about how you got introduced to Light of the Jedi? Sure. So I have a very distinct memory of the first time I ever watched Star Wars or a Star War, if you will. Uh, it was A New Hope. That was my, that was my gateway. And I have this memory of, I would have been maybe seven or eight, I think. And it was at about eight o'clock in the evening. So that's how, that's how precise I have this memory. Yeah, it's just seared into my brain. And we'd been, my parents and I, we'd been watching a daughter of a family friend had been over at our apartment for the afternoon or evening or whatever. And basically right around eight o'clock, her parents came to pick her up. And it was basically at that time that A New Hope premiered on, or was starting to play on TBS, or back at the time it was TBS Superstation, because this is the late 90s. And I just have the distinct memory of that shot of Vader stepping onto the Tanta Four. And that's like my first Star Wars memory, is just seeing that shot. Um, and again, just like one of those things that is like seared into my brain. And, you know, this would have been like 1998, somewhere around there, 97, 98. Uh, I was too young, I didn't see the special editions in theater. So my exposure was on, you know, through TV. And of course the following year, or however much time it was, was 99 was Phantom Menace. And I was very much like the target demographic because I was like eight years old, seven, eight, when Phantom Menace came out. And so like, I just have like a lot of fond memories of like the build up to the Phantom Menace, like all the merch for it, the like tie-ins with the different like fast food chains. Like I remember all of that. And so I remember like really, you know, like really loving Phantom Menace when it came out, like seeing it a bunch of times in theaters. And then of course, you know, seeing the other OT movies, I don't remember like what order I saw them in and then seeing Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith in theaters and like, you know, being big into Star Wars and like getting the toys and all that stuff. For me, and I think this is the case for a lot of fans, like we approached Revenge of the Sith as sort of the end of Star Wars. I think for a lot of people it was. And I remember as I was getting into, let's say my like late teens into kind of early adulthood, I remained a Star Wars fan, but it did kind of dip for a while, largely because like there wasn't really new stuff coming out. I didn't really keep up with Legends, or I guess what was the expanded universe at the time. When like Clone Wars came out, like either the movie or the TV show, like I didn't see those at the time. 
So my sort of fandom was kind of limited to the six movies, really. And it was really once the Disney acquisition happened and we got the sequel trilogy and there's that sort of uptick that I kind of got back into Star Wars in a much more kind of proactive way. And then it was around 2018 that I got into Star Wars animation. And actually the catalyst for that, funnily enough, was Solo. And specifically it was the Maul cameo in Solo. Because it was like, I had known that Maul was sort of alive, that he kind of survived the events of Phantom Menace, they'd been brought back. I was kind of aware of that in the back of my head as like a thing, but I didn't have any of the knowledge of like, the what, the when, the how, what was he doing and such. And so once he kind of popped up at the end of that movie, I was like, okay, now I, I got to go to this, like, I got to go see this Clone Wars stuff and all. It's like, I got to know the story here. I got to know what's going on. And so then that got me into Clone Wars and that got me into Rebels. And it was somewhere around that time also, uh, right around that, like, last Jedi kind of solo period that I started listening to Star Wars podcasts and started getting into that. And so from there, it was sort of a process of kind of finding more podcasts, basically through other ones. So it would be like, I would listen to one and then like that, like that person or those hosts might guest on another show. And then I started listening to that show. And then maybe those folks reference a third show. And then I started listening to that one. So it was this kind of domino effect. And then from there, it sort of went into like, you know, getting into Star Wars Twitter and engaging with some of those people that I was listening to and then finding more people and so on and so forth. And then it was kind of through that that I started thinking about starting my own show. And at first it was like, it was one of those things that it was like, I had the, it was really kind of like daydream. I was kind of thinking about it and it'd be like, ha like, wouldn't it be funny if I started my own show? Unless, what if I did start my own show? Um... <laughs> And so I kind of started thinking of like a concept, like what kind of show would I want to put out? And what was important for me was when I went into this was there were a couple of things that were kind of top of mind. One is that I knew that the ecosystem of Star Wars podcast was very big. So I had to think like I had to find my own unique angle to the extent that I could. And then the second important thing to me was that I produce, like whatever kind of show I make would be something that felt sort of authentically me. That was really true to my own interests and to my own kind of way that I think and approach and consume Star Wars. And so it was from those kind of basic principles and that kind of desire to kind of get in the game that a larger view of the force came to being. And so it's kind of, it's a little hard to describe what a larger view of the Force is. I know this because I've had to do it on a couple different shows and I've kind of stumbled and bumbled my way through each and every single time. But um, the kind of one sentence description, if you go like find the show on any like podcast platform is basically like, it's a show that takes a bird's eye look at the people, places and things in a galaxy far, far away. And basically what I do on the show is like a big part of the show is kind of big picture looks in Star Wars and then also deep dives into Star Wars. So really doing like close reads and analysis of certain characters or particular themes in Star Wars uh, and, th and things of that nature. And also trying to kind of emphasize the connectivity, not just within Star Wars, I'm really trying to, you know, 
what I like to do in a lot of episodes is kind of pull from various elements of Star Wars. So like pull things, let's say, moments or ideas or themes from the movies and then pull things from books and then pull things from the shows. So that kind of connectivity and kind of emphasizing Star Wars as this kind of cohesive whole thing. And then also kind of pulling in connections and ideas from the real world. So I do a lot with, let's say, history and making connections with that in Star Wars and with, let's say, uh, philosophy and like intellectual trends and things like that. And I kind of pull a lot of that into into the show because I have a background at, I have a, I have a background as, a, as an academic because I have a PhD in history. And so I, I sort of pull a lot of that like training and that kind of analysis into the show. And so that's sort of been my way of trying to say, well, here's like, here's my show. Like here's the divorce Star Wars show. And like, here is my kind of contribution such as it is to the space. First of all, I, I, I kind of feel bad that I didn't refer to you as Dr. DeVore. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know that's like one of the cardinal sins of anyone who has a PhD and when you don't honor them with doctor. Uh, so if you want to take this from the top, we can do that. <laughs> uh, I, I do have to say one of the things that struck me when I was first listening to your show was, you know, how you mentioned that you pull from history and philosophy and really connecting the world of Star Wars to our world. And the depth and the passion to which you do those things on your show, there was one episode where you were connecting the entire kind of like the Jedi religion and philosophy to, I think was it Greek philosophies, or kind of yeah. like um, ancient Western philosophies, that, which was, it's so fascinating to, you know, these things that we at face value looking at Star Wars wouldn't think of, but then you and your show, you really dive into and dive into those ideas and and make those deep connections and it's it's one of my favorite shows and you know you can uh, let the listeners know where to find that show uh at the at the tail end but it's really fantastic work that that you do but you know you you've spoken about your background with Star Wars and then given us a good idea of what you do with your podcast but how did you come across the High Republic and Light of the Jedi I know at the time there's a lot of you know marketing for it and big name authors in the Star Wars community who are working on uh, you know the novels and comics that comprise the the era so far of the High Republic but yeah, kind of what were your first steps with Light of the Jedi? Yeah, so much in the same way that I was kind of late to Star Wars animation, I was also a little late to Star Wars books. And by late, same. I mean like last year. Okay, not same. <laughs> I'm going to have to ask you to leave. <laughs> yeah, so again, sort of like much in the same way as with, as I was with the animated shows, like I was aware that there were books out there and I was sort of getting exposed to them particularly by listening to podcasts and having people talk about them and so eventually I was deciding well I, I should get into this as part of, as part of the process of like getting deeper and deeper into Star Wars canon and the fandom and such and so I started kind of reading books really kind of as they were recommended as I kind of heard about them I was really kind of hopping around it wasn't any particular like I wasn't going in any particular order, really focusing like any particular era or such. And so I remember, I think it was last year, right? It would have been when there was the talk about Project Luminous and like there had been this thing that had been teased for such a long time. And there was like speculation about like what exactly was it going to be? And then we got this reveal, of course, that it was going to be this publishing initiative that was going to focus on really this brand new 
era in Star Wars that really hadn't been covered really by anyone. I don't think even the old EU ever covered this time period. Um, so Natra is very sort of intrigued by that, by the premise of this kind of purported golden age of the Jedi and the Republic. And so once, you know, once this year rolled around and we got Light of the Jedi and it started opening up, I was eager to dive into it. And also just hearing people kind of talk about like just how good this book was. I was like, well, I really need to, I need to dive into it. So <laughs> I remember, you know, just knowing that I could not read this book for you know until I started covering it on season three just for this to be my first steps into the novel I, I really it was like me just like looking in into the window of everyone having a great time talking about the High Republic and this book as well just with how how great the content is but I'm glad that you know I've finally stepped in with you know with these chapters with this season and I'm glad to have you here to to talk about these chapters you know the first three were kind of uh, bereft of all things good and hopeful uh, <laughs> <laughs> until the very end with with Jedi Master Avar Chris um, saying that help was on the way. So kind of picking up where that left off, I could give my summary for Chapter 4, and then we can talk about Jedi Master Avar Chris. Let's go for it. A Republic cruiser, the Third Horizon, appears out of hyperspace in the Hetzal system. Finally, the Jedi relief effort, led by Master Avar Chris, had arrived. Spacecraft of various sizes and purposes exit the Third Horizon, all driven by the same goal, to save as many lives as possible amidst the chaos below. Chris reminisces on her path as a Jedi to this moment and feels a sense of purpose as the Republic and Jedi work together to aid the system however they can. As more anomalies appear out of hyperspace, Chris enters into a meditative state on the ship's bridge. Opening herself up to the will of the Force, the Jedi Master listens and senses for what their next moves will be. I was telling you off air, you know, how these three chapters are relatively short, and this one especially, it really the sole purpose of chapter four is to introduce us to this character of Avar Chris. Do you have any general thoughts on chapter four and this introduction to this novel Jedi Master uh, before we dive into the, the finer bits of it? Yeah, I mean, I like the... I mean, in some ways, the very end of the previous chapter, chapter three, sorts of sets it up. But like, what I like about this chapter, and as you mentioned, like these chapters are relatively short. This one is only about like two and a half pages long, I think. Yeah. Like, but what I think it does really effectively, just in that chapter, is it really kind of sets up and creates this atmosphere of like hope and promise that you have this, you have this one massive ship that shows up, and then it's carrying this whole complement and payload of all of these other ships, and they're coming in to help, and then you have this. Jedi Master who's leading it all, who, you know, by the way that she's described both sort of physically by her appearance and also in terms of what we get kind of happening internally in her, is this very kind of ethereal figure in a lot of ways and a very kind of intriguing person. Like there's a lot of description that like Soul does here, like immediately like grabs you and like you want to know more about like who is she? Like what's her deal? What's her situation? Like, she's, she's set up as this very powerful and important and special Jedi. You get that, I think, really from the jump. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, she's the one, as we'll talk about, who is, you know, leading this operation. You know, really, it's it's her looking out from the bridge as all of these other craft who are carrying other Jedi, you know, are, are going to, to aid in, in all these different ways. So really, you know, she is kind of set up as the main kind of the, the focal person in this relief effort. But you were talking about Soul's the, the the way that he's describing Chris and this descriptive language and really at the start of it uh, when he's even introducing the the third horizon the ship that they arrive on I was struck by the the language that he was using to describe you know really so far in the book everything from the physical descriptions to like the abstract kind of moods and ideas about the Republic you know regarding the Republic and the Jedi and I'm just going to read a passage here when he's describing the look of the third horizon. The ship's surface rippled along its frame like waves on a silver sea, tapering to a point, with towers and crenellations along its length, like a fortress laid on its side, all wings and spires and spirals. It spoke of ambition. It spoke of optimism. It spoke of a thing made beautiful because it could be, with little considerations given to cost or effort. And I really just, <laughs> you know, the, the, the way that he's describing this ship... And really, kind of, I think I feel like it kind of extends outwardly to how he, how I guess the galaxy looks at the Republic and the Jedi in this age as well. It's kind of emblematic of this larger entity and these larger entities. But really, it's just hope. You had mentioned hope, and just majesty that is kind of literally oozing off the page when he's, you know, describing this ship. I was just really struck by the beauty of even just describing a just a, a cruiser, a Republic cruiser here. Right, and I'm glad you quoted that chunk because I have a little bit of it also in my own notes because it also stood out to me on the kind of reread. And particularly that last bit where he says like, it spoke of ambition, it spoke of optimism, of a thing made beautiful and such. When I was rereading these chapters to prepare for this, when I got through that passage, the thing that immediately popped in my mind, the immediate like association my brain made was with the Naboo ships in Phantom Menace. Mm. Just immediately thought of that because like those ships, like the big thing about those is like, it's not really about like functionality per se as it is about aesthetics. It's these ships that are beautiful because they can be. And, you know, I think there was like a detail for instance about the queen ship in Phantom Menace that like, it doesn't have any weapons on it because there was like, the Naboo were a peaceful people. There was no sense of like, there was gonna be any kind of threat or need for protection. And so I think like in the same way that in the context of, you know, when we just look at the Skywalker saga, a lot of people look at Phantom Menace and some of those aesthetics and the aesthetics of Naboo and say like, well, that really like speaks to and harkens to this kind of prior golden age of the galaxy before you get the dark times. And I think in a similar fashion, what we get with the descriptions of, let's say, the Third Horizon or even the Vectors, we'll get a little bit of that, I think, in Chapter 5, the description of what the Jedi Vectors look like. So all of these ships, I think, is doing something similar, where it's, it's using these, you know, the, the aesthetics of the ship to basically say, like, well, here is this, like, here's this golden age, here is this, you know, this period of greatness in the galaxy, and here it is reflected in these craft. Yeah, really everything about the Republic that we've, you know, heard so far is just this elegance and this beauty. And really, it's just, it is dictated in even the ships that they fly, which is, it was really just striking language and writing from from Soul here. And, you know, we do 
find that you know all these other ships are kind of branching off of the third horizon to go down to help on the surfaces of the the moon and the uh, Hetzal Prime, and um, and then we center on the woman on the bridge, kind of the Jedi Master Avar Chris, you know the one who had responded to the distress signal at the end of Chapter Three, and. We're, you know, get kind of getting a little bit of a backstory from her, you know, kind of in, in her thoughts when she's reflecting, you know, she's been with the Order for some 30 years now. And we get this description of the Jedi Temple even, to which she refers to in her head as a, quote, school and embassy and monastery and reminder of the Force connecting to every living thing. And something about that description really interested me when I first read it, you know, really touching on kind of all of the temple's functions, including a reminder that it is literally a monastery for this ancient religion that the Jedi, you know, uh, worship or practice. But it was just, uh, I'd never really heard about the Jedi temple described in those ways. And I think, again, you know, soul using just language to really paint these full pictures about even, you know, ships and buildings and all that. It's really creating this, this vivid image of maybe something that we hadn't always thought of when we thought of, you know, this big old Jedi temple in the center of Coruscant in those, in those ways. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a very succinct way of capturing all of the various functions that the temple serves. And in a lot of ways, by extension, the various roles that the Jedi play and occupy. So you have the element of school, so you have education, you know, we, we get to see some of that and even if we think about like the prequels and such of that happening, like the great little Yoda scene in Attack of the Clones <laughs> when he's educating the younglings. The embassy, so again, that's sort of speaking to the political nature of the Jedi and how they have this particular relationship vis-a-vis -vis the Senate and the Chancellor and how they sort of play that role. Then, you know, m the monastery, th them is fundamentally sort of the religion of the galaxy and their teachings and their philosophy and their history in that regard. And then finally, the element of the reminder of the force connecting every living thing. So like the, the, the temple itself as being the sort of embodiment of this notion of the force as this thing that penetrates and surrounds us and, you know, binds the galaxy together as Obi-Wan says in A New Hope. Yeah, it's, you know, really, that just brings me back to even this, the start, you know, the first line of this book, which I think was, you know, the force was with the galaxy. And there's still that, just that theme running through that, you know, the force is kind of connecting the known galaxy at this time, you know, and just kind of really just present in everyone's thoughts and, and just, I guess, feelings toward the Republic and the Jedi, you know, the force was present and connecting everything. Uh, you know, granted that this is in Chris's point of view, so I guess as a Jedi, she has to think that. But uh, it's just, it's a common thread, I guess, through the chapters so far, is this trust in the Jedi and the Republic and, and the force. Yeah, and even in some ways, like, if we think about it to the Star Wars that we know, it kind of represents a contrast to, like, if you, let's say, if you go to, like, the prequel era and you see some of the things that get talked about as that moves forward and you start hearing about, well, our ability to use the Force has been diminished because the dark side is clouding things and the Jedi are scattered everywhere all across the galaxy. We're spread really thin. And so, like, there's a sort of contrast there where, like, in that period as we're getting to the kind of end of the Republic and the kind of rise of the Sith, we're seeing the ways in which the Jedi are kind of scattered, they're stretched thin, their connection to the Force and to each other is becoming impaired as you have this, you know, the, this rising Sith Lord. And then when you rewind the clock 200-something years into this period, you see all this emphasis on 
connection and unity and kind of bringing everyone together through the force. So I think there's a really kind of important contrast there. Yeah, I'd noticed, you know, there, there's been a few points of really stark contrast between the than the galaxy currently in this book and the galaxy as we know it through the Skywalker saga. And there was this moment where uh, Chris is noting that, yes, there was this Admiral Cronara who was technically in charge of the Third Horizon, but, um, quote, he had ceded control of the effort to save Hetzal to the Jedi. There was no conflict or discussion about the decision. The Republic had its strengths and the Jedi had theirs, and each used them to support and benefit the other. And you were talking about contrast, and I feel like this could be also symbolic for the relationship between the Jedi and the Republic, you know, from Chris to Cronara, kind of emblematic of, of the, the larger entities and their relationship in the current galaxy. But it is very starkly contrasted, I think, to the picture that we get in the prequel era, particularly toward the end of the Clone War. And we just see how how different that is here, where here it's a really a, a very symbiotic relationship seemingly between the Republic and the Jedi and just how much that ends up changing the closer we get or I guess by the time that we're in the prequel era and you know with the with the rise of Palpatine and the fall of the order right no you're totally right about that yeah that stark contrast between just the harmony that we get just in this one chapter between Chris and the Admiral and the way that they're able to sort of understand what their own respective roles are and basically willing to cede to the Jedi, you know, when and where they need to because they sort of recognize what the Jedi are good at versus, as you said, once we get to the prequel period and particularly once we get into the Clone Wars and all that and you start getting, let's say, you know, the corruption of the Senate and you get, you know, somebody like Dooku who gets disillusioned by that and goes to the dark side, then you start having the growing mistrust between the Jedi Council and Palpatine and they're both suspicious of each other and yeah, so you get a very, you, you get a, a, a sense of a different kind of relationship between the Jedi and the kind of institutions of the Republic here versus when we look in the prequel period, all the examples in which that starts to erode in those years. But as we're getting from Chris's perceptions of what's currently going on, you know, the, the anomalies are still appearing out of hyperspace. You know, this crisis is still very much ongoing. But can we, we transition to that kind of in the compact nature of this chapter. We get a description of Chris's outfit here, uh, which you know, just from this chapter alone, it seems like her fashion style is totally on point. Yes. But she's, she's noted to be wearing... The ceremonial attire, which includes this white cape that we see, I think, billowing on the cover of, I guess, the standard Light of the Jedi uh, book. I, I think I have the special edition here, so I, I'm not graced by her wonderful cape. But it's uh, also secured with this golden buckle bearing the, the Order symbol. And apparently we get this note that they had just completed a conclave between the Jedi and the Republic, you know, again, hearkening to that sense of harmony and unison between the two bodies over this starlight beacon, which has been mentioned a couple times in the book so far. I still, you know, I know it's a space station. That's about it. <laughs> it's supposed to be really important. Um, but I was really, I was caught by this description here. Chris refers to it as a, quote, galaxy-changing space station, which adds intrigue, yes. But, you know, if I didn't know any better, you know, one could kind of describe the Death Star in the same language. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you could. A galaxy-changing space station. Yeah. You know, do, are the Jedi and the Republic constructing a Death Star? 
show me the lie. It, 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 it could be the Death Star could be described in the same language here. It could totally could. You are not wrong about that. It was a galaxy-changing space station. But if they name it better, the Starlight Beacon, no one will suspect the truth. Exactly. <laughs> you know, when you put death in the name of your thing, it just kind of kind of gives away the game. Yeah, you know. But if you try to, you know, play the play the stealthy approach, then it might work out better. So maybe this is the prequel to the Death Star. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're gonna send it into the outer rim, and we're gonna show them what the Republic is really all about. <laughs> yes. We get this note too that Chris, you know, taps the buckle of her cape, and and the the cape fell to the floor. And I see that you know even two hundred years before the prequels, the Jedi are still in the business of just dropping their garments to the floor in piles. I'm like, do they even care if the floor is messy? Like, how much laundry do you think the Jedi do just with dropping their robes all over the floor? Dramatic cape removals. You know, some things do not change in two hundred years. You know, we've talked about all the ways that the Jedi are different and the Republic are different, but no. Go from here all the way to, you know, uh, Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon and Phantom Menace to, you know, Obi-Wan and Anakin on the Invisible Hand. You know, that, that teaching has remained consistent across the millennia for the thousand generations. <laughs> How to drop your cape dramatically. All about the dramaticism, you know, that is maybe as consistent in the galaxy as the force uh you heard yes. it right here <laughs> and she's also we get this description of her saber as well which i think has a cross guard on her saber which is uh which seems pretty cool um and that it's lined with this bright green sea stone which like just everything about chris's description here from her lightsaber to her garments and all that it's just really emblematic of this larger i think view of just the the purity and the beauty and the elegance of what the Jedi are really just even when you look at just the the outfit of even one of them here but the chapter ends with Chris you know sitting on the ground and she's crossing her legs and she begins to meditate and when she's focusing in on the force she starts to to levitate I think a meter off of the deck and at first you know full disclosure when I read this I it must have been late because I was like we haven't seen anything like this at all of Star Wars. But I wrote in my notes like, um, what? Like she's levitating. And then I realized, I remembered all the times where we in fact have seen that before and yes. realized that I'm an idiot. But uh, <laughs> it's just like, I just, I like how the bridge crew notices this. And she's, uh, I guess, I don't know if it's maybe the omniscient narrator because she, I think, has her eyes closed is saying that, you know, there were some that smiled, others that nodded, and yet others who kind of felt this surge of hope. You know, A, Qui-Gon would be proud, you know, this kind of like connecting to the Force, you know, being in tune with the Force here. But I love how in tune kind of the Republic crew members are with Chris and what she's doing here, where they kind of know what to expect and are familiar with the hope that the Jedi embody. And it was just a really kind of just chilling, beautiful moment to end the chapter here. Just with that, just her connecting quietly to the forest, levitating off the ground, and everyone just kind of feeling hopeful. Which, as we've said, there's not really been a lot of hope in this book so far. But it was a, a nice way to end this chapter. Yeah, I, t I totally agree. Yeah, the imagery and the description of her of her meditating and sort of connecting to the force. And like one thing that I really love in any kind of writing is when you get little like short punchy sentences so i love that the chapter just ends with she began 
I'm like, that's it. Like, that's a great, that's a great ending. Yeah, for sure. It's, I don't know if this is, you know, I doubt that she's going into any kind of battle right now. She, she, has, she says that, you know, the Jedi are not going to win with their lightsabers here. But this kind of what she's doing here reminded me of the kind of battle meditation that we had heard about in kind of the Old Republic and the prequel era where kind of the, the Jedi are you know, kind of either like on the bridge or kind of in their quarters and they're kind of meditating to prepare for whatever is about to happen and kind of being in tune with everything that is happening around them. And I don't know what capacity she will be involved in with what's to come because we don't get more of Chris in the next two chapters. But I'm just interested to see what will unfold with, like you're saying, the succinct just she began, you know, because it really it it adds an element of intrigue here. But it's also just it's short, it's sweet, it's to the point. And we kind of get we start to get this idea of who Chris is as a Jedi and what she kind of, you know, stands for. Um, in her connection to the Force, but it was really uh, this whole chapter, it was short, like you're saying, just two and a half pages, but there was a lot of kind of build-up to this really kind of powerful, important figure of Avar Chris um, with just a, a beautiful ending, just she began. Yeah, I totally agree. It, it, it's a very effective job of making you interested in this character, intrigued by this character, and then also, without telling you much about her, establishing that, okay, this is an important person and you need to pay attention to this person and she's going to have an important role moving forward in the story. Yeah, I'm hoping that, you know, kind of it has, things haven't ended well for most of the characters in the first few chapters. I'm <laughs> I'm guessing just from people continuing to talk on Twitter about the character of Avar Chris, you know, here and there, I'm guessing she survives this, but also at the same time, Charles Soule, don't take her from us just now. <laughs> Uh, the beauty of me not having read this before. <laughs> but I can give my summary for chapter five, and we can keep rolling kind of on this this better taste in our mouth for, for how Chris has left us off right here with uh, meditating before this, just everything that's about to unfold. Let's do it. Aboard a smaller Vector spacecraft, Padawan Bel Zedifar and his master, Loden Greatstorm, rush to the surface of Hetzel Prime in order to provide whatever aid or assistance that they can. Bell admires the beauty of the planet before his master flies them in closer as they determine where their help is needed most. At Great Storm's encouragement, Bell opens himself up to the force around him, sensing the general emotion of the planet's billions of citizens. After a moment, he senses a great feeling of injustice just east of their position, and the two Jedi fly off to investigate. They arrive to a large compound housing a yacht and witness a large crowd of citizens desperate to break through the gates onto the ship in order to escape the planet. As guards on the compound walls fire warning shots, Bell and Greatstorm jump down from their ship to help. We're introduced to two new Jedi in this chapter. Uh, they seem really cool, <laughs> just from, yes. uh, from these from these pages alone. But uh, before we dive in, any any thoughts on Chapter Five and the characters of uh, Padawan Bell and his master, with the coolest name that I've heard yet, uh, Great Storm? Yeah, Loden Great Storm, the Jedi with the Game of Thrones ass name, <laughs> came straight from Dragonstone to Hetzel to <laughs> help out. Confirmed. <laughs> yes. 
I had, you know, when you first given me the chapters of four through six, I naturally didn't remember what they were about before I looked at them. And so when I got to chapter five and then saw Belzettifar, I got so excited because I love Belzettifar. <laughs> he is my man. He is one of my favorite High Republic Jedi that we have gotten. He is, a, without, of course, spoiling anything in either Light of the Jedi or particularly Rising Storm later on, he is just... Keep your eyes on Belzettifar. Like, he is just an absolutely fantastic character, and you will fall in love with him. There was a lot to like about him in this chapter, yes. and I'm, I'm glad to hear that it is consistent throughout. Uh, you know, he really did seem just like, he just seemed cool. Um, and also yes, just. Yes, he is very, very cool. Yeah. <laughs> I was impressed with what we got in, in chapter five. You know, I do have to note that. At this chapter, like all of the others before it, it does begin with this, quote, time to impact. And currently we're at 80 minutes to impact. I just wrote in my notes, uh, eyes emoji, like, what, what is going to happen? <laughs> I'm just like, I'm just full of, like, the suspense is unreal for me. Just, like, getting closer to this impact. And I don't know what's about to I, like, I can't even make a prediction because it's just something's getting closer. So, like something's happening. And right now, just on top of every emotion we've gotten so far, just the suspense is just building with like, you know, every chapter, like five minutes closer to this impact. Like Charles Stoll was like, oh, it's coming. I'm just like, what? what? I just don't know. <laughs> yes, the, the, close, the closest you can do in a book to having like the ticking clock sound. This is it. Yes. <laughs> They are flying on this vector spacecraft. I'm not going to call it a starfighter because it. I think it's described with, or, or it's described as having, you know, pretty minimal or minimalist kind of characteristics. Um, you know, they're saying that there's not a lot of, uh, or almost no weaponry, kind of no computer assistance. And it's very, it, it's just something that can fly, <laughs> that, it, yes. that it's sounding like. Where I was really struck by... Like, these ships kind of solely rely on the capabilities of their Jedi pilots. And I just, I hadn't really heard of anything like this before. And we get really a, a lot more about kind of how these things fly, like, later in the chapter when they get closer to the surface. But it was really, again, you know, just kind of, like, harking on this contrast between what we have now with what we have later with kind of, like, the the Ada starfighters that the Jedi fly in the Clone Wars, you know, really kind of souped up, you know, weaponry, kind of very flashy. And here it's just very minimalistic, very simplistic, really solely acting as this kind of vessel for the Jedi to, you know, guide with their Force abilities. Uh, it was just very striking description for, you know, after we get this really grandiose description of the, the Third Horizon, you know, this really awesome freighter or cruiser, and then with these vectors, it was really, uh, you know, very different, um, a very different description about these starfighters or these starships. Yeah, and something that I thought about when I read that section in the very beginning when they were describing it, and, you know, there's a point where he says, the Jedi were the shielding, the weaponry, the minds that calculated what the vessel could achieve and where it could go. Like, a big theme in Star Wars, something that kind of comes up again over and over as a kind of motif, is about technology and about like the relationship particularly between technology and nature and the natural world 
And when we look at particularly, again, you know, setting up the contrast with the Star Wars that we know, when we go to the Skywalker saga period, we often see those two in tension, particularly with, if you think about the Empire with that, what was it, galaxy-shaping space station? <laughs> the Death Star? I'm not wrong. <laughs> yes, but th this machine that is capable of destroying planets, or we get to see the Empire, you know, extracting natural resources and polluting different worlds, you always see this kind of tension between this reliance on technology and nature, particularly the force. Even you think about like, go to a new hope, to the conference room scene, don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed. Mm -hmm. The ability to destroy a planet is insignificant next to the power of the force. Mm -hmm. There's there a kind of contrast that Vader is drawing there between like, there's the weapons on the one, there's the machines, but then there's the force. And that's something different. But then when we look at, for instance, these vectors and the way that they're describing like this kind of harmony between the Jedi and these ships, that basically the Jedi are the ones who are sort of guiding them and providing all of the functions that ordinarily, as you said, you know, when you were talking about some of the prequel Jedi starfighters, like shielding, weapons and all that, would have been part of the actual ship itself. Like, mm -hmm. The Jedi themselves are doing that in this kind of symbiotic relationship with the technology. Yeah, I love that callback to A New Hope with uh, Vader kind of commenting on the the Death Star there, you know, because that is a kind of a, a constant, you know, kind of through line through Star Wars, just that that clash, that the tension between the nature and can, or technology and the living force in the natural world. You know, when Bell is continuing to think about these vectors and he's noting that typically they kind of fly in swarms, you know, kind of in large groups, he's thinking back to an exhibition on Coruscant that he had seen where there was a, a bunch of these things kind of flying like leaves or like birds in the air. And he said it was, quote, as part of the temple's outreach programs, this exhibition. And it was just interesting and kind of funny to think about the Jedi doing outreach programs, you know, <laughs> and kind of public exhibitions. You know, we'd heard about them in kind of ceremonial capacities before, I think, in Master and Apprentice uh, with, you know, their sabers, you know, because no one had really fought a Sith. So what's left except just to, you know, do, kind of participate in these ceremonies. But it was just interesting to think about the Jedi kind of in outreach programs and, you know, and again, contrasted to really the perceptions or some perceptions of maybe the Jedi being kind of holed up in their temple on Coruscant in the prequels. But then in this era, they're just, they're, they're doing air shows. They're doing it all like this outreach. It's really just this public kind of uh, image. <laughs> I didn't know about that outreach program. You're just like picturing now like a Jedi, like big brother, big sister program. They're like showing up at some basketball court and like shooting hoops. Like, <laughs> Like, what does this Jedi outreach look like? Handing out pamphlets, you know? Yes. <laughs> I want to know more. I want an image here of what this, of, of what these events are, what this looks like. It's just so funny to think of. Just showing up at your kid's basketball game. Yes. Like, oh, the Jedi are here. <laughs> when Great Storm, again, hell of a name, uh, yes. starts to pilot them down to the surface or closer to the surface of Hetzel Prime, you know, he, he's kind of putting on a show with his flying abilities. You know, I thought of Finn, you know, in, in Force Awakens, that's one hell of a pilot. You know, it seems yeah. to be uh, loading great storm here. I, I just love this description here that Soul gives us that, you know, when he's, when they kind of engage in this drop towards, you know, closer to the surface, they're, quote, sliding through the air currents, riding them down, letting the ship become just another part of the interplay of gravity and wind above the planet's surface. And again, I, I just couldn't help but think that this might be 
speaking to a larger image here of the Jedi and the Republic that we've gotten so far, that they're very interwoven, kind of, you know, this this interplay of, of between the Jedi and the Republic in the galaxy, kind of coexisting naturally and building off of each other. I just, I couldn't help but make that connection, but it's also just a very vivid and just graceful description of Great Storm just maneuvering to the surface that I'm just really impressed by the language that Soul is is kind of bringing out of his arsenal so far to describe everything about the Jedi and what they do and who they are and how they act. It's very striking. Yes, yeah, and it sort of goes back to, you know, a couple things that we've talked about so far. Like, first, like the elegance of it all, that the way that they move and the way that they dive down and like the again the kind of nature imagery of like them resembling birds then sort of back to the point that we were just talking about a few minutes ago about the sort of nature and technology kind of Mm -hmm. dichotomy like the way that they're talking about like using like letting the air and the gravity kind of guide the way that the ships fall and the way that they fly so again that notion of like harmony and symbiosis i think is really kind of conveyed there very well for sure. You know, as they get closer to the surface, um, you know, Bell is wondering, okay, we're closer to, you know, we're closer to where we need to be, but also are we? Because, like, you know, where are we supposed to go? They're kind of just given the instructions to, quote, help, you know, in, in whatever that capacity may be. And Great Storm is leaving it pretty much up to Bell to determine their destination. I'm just going to read this this bit here when kind of they're de- they're deciding where to go and what Bell is, is to do. Quote, Loden Greatstorm's philosophy as a teacher was very simple. If Bell was theoretically capable of something, even if Loden could do it ten times as fast and a hundred times more skillfully, then Bell would end up doing that thing, not Loden. If I do everything, no one learns anything, his master was fond of saying. Um, Thrawn, is that you? Let's think about Thrawn and Eli Fonto, where it's like, yes. Thrawn could do everything, but he's not going to, you know, he lets the others going to learn. I just, like, instantly thought of Thrawn here, and it was just, I couldn't <laughs> help it. It's a good comparison. <laughs> just, I, just, I love that, though, kind of the trust between Great Storm and Bell, that even in this high-stakes scenario, this high-stakes situation where, you know, assumingly there's still anomalies kind of falling to the surface as they speak. You know, there's chaos below kind of, you know, when everything might look tranquil and peaceful from a distance, they know the chaos and the panic that's happening on the surface. That even in this situation, Great Storm is leaving it to his apprentice to decide, okay, where are we going to go? You know, he could kind of sense out with the force for himself, but he's letting his Padawan handle this important task really in the in the heat of a dire mission which i was impressed with just that trust between them you know that their bond instantly their that their bond is strong yeah exactly you know we talked about in chapter four the way like establishing things with sort of economy of words like and i think this chapter does something very similar in the same way that like chapter four does a lot with avar chris and kind of setting her up this chapter, again, with not a lot of space, not a lot of words, does a lot to kind of establish this relationship between Bell and Loden. And we sort of get a very quick and yet still kind of satisfying introduction into like their dynamic as master and apprentice, where you just talk about like you, you quoted that paragraph where it's talking about his philosophy of basically, you know, letting Bell do the thing, even if Loden could do it and do it better. And then like in the subsequent paragraph, you know, we get things from like Bell's side of it, where he's like, 
you know, you've got Loden basically saying like, if you, like, if you don't do it, like, how can you learn? And then like, Bell in the next paragraph basically being like, you shitting me? Like, we're in the <laughs> middle of this. Like, can't you do it now? Like, like, I gotta figure this out. And so you get some of that, like him being like, okay, like I'll do it. But like, but that sort of frustration of like, I'm doing like everything all the time. Like, why doesn't he just this once? Like when it really matters, can you step up? So clearly Great Storm had not read what part one of this book was, you know, Great Disaster. Like, hey, yes. maybe we should be acting a little bit faster here. <laughs> but, you know, I think Bell did note did note that, you know, every day of training with Great Storm, you know, pushed him to his limits. So, you know, that, you know, Great Storm has high expectations, but it is, you know, as we figure out and as this chapter progresses, that it has paid off with Bell's training here because, you know, he does start to meditate kind of just like like uh, Avar Chris did in the previous chapter, opening himself up to this force. You know, on one hand, again, I feel like uh, Qui-Gon would have much preferred to be part of this group of Jedi, you know, being just willing to listen to the force in the moment and letting letting it guide them. Uh, but I, I really love Bell's interpretation of the force here, where he's centering himself and he likens the force within him to you know a candle or a flame and there's this this quote here from his thoughts from spark to inferno any connection to the force chased away the shadows i got chills reading that i just i love that description there of the the power of the force what it means to them it was just a beautiful description of this centering and this perception that Bell has from this living force that he's connecting with here. Yeah, and this is something that is a kind of big thing within the higher public and something that you'll discover in sort of subsequent chapters is we get to see the different ways that different Jedi sort of perceive the force and how it sort of manifests for them. And yeah, you sort of use the analogy of the candle in the case of Belzedifar, the flame that kind of banishes the shadows. There are other ones that kind of show up later in the book. But yeah, it's always interesting to see because the force is always this sort of abstraction. Like I think about that scene in The Last Jedi, in the lesson one scene uh, with Luke and Rey, where like Rey looks at him at one point and they're talking about the Force, she's like, "But what is it?" <laughs> I think that's like that's a lot of us, where you know we get the the Obi Wan line about you know the energy field and Pendrix and Bind. It's like, but, 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 but what is it? <laughs> like, what does that mean? So like getting to see it, getting to see it through these different Jedi eyes and the different ways that it manifests, I I think is really really fascinating to think about different sort of metaphors and allegories to try and kind of wrap our minds around what is fundamentally this kind of quasi-religious abstraction. Yeah, I think uh, Alberto in the first episode had mentioned that, you know, I'll find that a lot of the Jedi or pretty much every Jedi that that we will encounter, that I will encounter in, in, in reading this book are very unique. And each one is very different from the other, especially, you know, those kind of in the outer rim outposts. And I think, you know, here, and, and I think you're hinting at it just even with their perceptions of what the Force is to them, what, what it looks like when they kind of connect with it and envision it. Um, it's just fascinating. So I, I look forward to seeing kind of that interpretation even differ among Jedi themselves. I also like this moment when he is connecting to the Force, you know, he's starting to kind of sense the, the citizens around him across the planet. And it's not this, uh, I think Sol mentions that it's not necessarily a map 
but it's kind of giving him a sense of, you know, general impressions or emotions of people um, across the planet rather than kind of, you know, mapping out specific point A, point B, you know, this is where Josh is on, you know, the the farm over there. Um, but I thought it was, you know, it reminded me of when Qui-Gon opened himself to the Force in Master and Apprentice. You know, we just covered that on season two, so it's pretty fresh in my mind where he was sensing the sentiments aboard Fan Reed's flagship at the end where he could sense their general emotions, not necessarily specifics. And I was thinking that it was kind of cool to see that consistency across the writing just you know even between authors but also you know just uh between jedi across the eras that this is you know it was just cool to see that connection and this is what it's like just the, the sensing this broader emotions even from bell zedifar here to qui-gon jinn you know 200 years later it was just it was cool to note yeah i mean i love that phrase at one point when we get to the description of bell kind of reaching out and sensing soul uses the phrase the force web Mm. And I love that. I know <laughs> Spider-Man. Like, yeah, them all connect. <laughs> like the thing that I, the thing that popped into my mind was also Marvel, one, but I immediately thought of Cerebro and X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> when Xavier like plugs in, like when we think of the movies and he like goes on, like he sees all the people. Like that's immediately what, what I thought in a similar sort of fashion, like that notion of like that web of connection and being able to see all of these people and kind of sense their thoughts and their emotions. Yeah. For sure, I love that. <laughs> Maybe Professor X is Force-sensitive. Uh, <laughs> and so they end up reaching this compound, you know, where the crowd is trying to break through the gates to this large yacht. And, you know, the, the situation kind of ends boiling over where there's a guard that fires off a warning shot. You know, no one's hurt, you know, warning shot, but clearly the situation is getting, is going from bad to worse and the crowd is becoming increasingly incensed. And Great Storm resolves to find out you know why the crowd isn't being let into the compound they're thinking that it might belong to a wealthy individual or individuals um but i just love this this ending to the chapter it's just i can't describe it other than cool uh where great storm says to bell you know kind of they're they're hovering above and they're in their vector and the the cockpit opens up and he says quote see you down there remember gravity does most of the work then he jumped out. <laughs> it was just an awesome, awesome ending to the chapter. <laughs> I, I love that. It's it's such an awesome move. And it just makes you think that, like, I think about, you know, I think about Yoda, who's around in this period. And I think about, like, when he was in the prequels and he saw Anakin growing up in training, like, how many flashbacks did Yoda have to, like, stuff like this? To, like, <laughs> Loden jumping out of his ship and he sees, like, Anakin do something. He's like, oh, this again. <laughs> Not again. <laughs> Obi-Wan, you know, in the future is like, oh, he cr he's cringing right now. Yes, exactly. I hate it when he does that. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I would have loved if the chapter had ended with Bell Zedifar. <laughs> I hate it when he does that. That would have been amazing. Oh, man. Maybe this is emblematic of, uh, you know, just how much they change over the years where even Bell's just like, oh, that's sick. And then Obi-Wan later is just like, oh, <laughs> I hate it when he does that. <laughs> Oh, man, it's like clearly the fall of the Jedi, you know, forget Order 66 and all that. It's when they used to jump out of their out of their starships, you know, down, to, you know, plummeting to the ground. And then how they how the Order is having none of it later on. Yes. <laughs> That's the true fall. <laughs> but uh, that that does end chapter five. I can roll with my summary for six and we can we can keep on moving. 
The crew of the Republic longbeam Aurora 9 anxiously attempts to shoot down an anomaly moving fast toward the center of the Hetzal system. The ship's captain, Bright, orders for six missiles to be fired at the fast-moving object once they realize it is on a collision course for a nearby solar array. The missiles launch, but the crew is disappointed to see that they all miss their mark, leaving the solar array in jeopardy. As they watch helplessly on, the anomaly strikes the array, severely damaging it and causing its central sphere to catch fire. Knowing that there might be seven members aboard the array in danger of dying, Captain Bright resolves to take his ship in to save whoever might be aboard. Despite their terror at the situation, the crew puts their duty above all else as they fly in toward the burning array. In theme with how the book has been moving so far, we're introduced to another set of new characters. I'm kind of have my trepidations uh, at how this will end for them. You know, the last time we were dealing with a kind of space station or outpost or array before, uh, it got obliterated by one of these <laughs> anomalies. Uh, but here, you know, they, they are going in to help this kind of the, the burning solar array at the end of the chapter. But before we even get into that, uh, what were your impressions about chapter six, you know, being introduced to Captain Bright and his brave crew. So, you know, the chapters that we get right before it in those two, we're really looking at things from the perspective of the Jedi and what they're up to. And so it's kind of nice for this chapter to be able to look at another set of players that actually look at the Republic side of things, the non-Force users, and the way that they're going about trying to, you know, help people out. Uh, so I did, I did like that, getting to see like all the different perspectives of Jedi versus non-Jedi and how they're kind of reacting to this disaster. Yeah, I think there's one moment in the chapter where, um, you know, because they're trying to shoot down this anomaly moving, you know, close to light speed and, you know, they're pretty much saying that, you know, their chances of destroying it and, and hitting it with their missiles or, or blasters or whatnot would be a miracle. And they're saying that, uh, he, or at least Captain Bright is thinking, miracles are for the Jedi. And so we get that kind of the, the distinction here between what a Jedi might be capable of and then what the, the regulars in the Republic, what's within their capability. So, you know, that distinction there, like you're, like you're mentioning, it's, it's alive and well in this chapter, which is a good change of perspective for sure. You know, as they're moving in to destroy this anomaly, as it's heading towards the, the center of the system and this, this solar array, we find out that the Aurora 9 and the other Longbeam ships are actually coming from, or at least they, they originated from the Republic shipyards on no other than Hosnian Prime, which was, yes. uh, <laughs> which was a nice little reference there to, uh, to <laughs> the, the sequels and all that. Um, <laughs> unless I, have I gotten that wrong? Or I'm, I'm right. That, no, it's Force Awakens. No, you're okay, right. Yeah, Hosnian yeah. Prime, sweet. Rest in peace. Hosnian right, Prime. Man, right. th this was the golden age of Hosnian Prime. <laughs> <laughs> Before that other galaxy-defining space station. Oh my god. I'm not going to trust the Starlight Beacon. I'm, I'm going in with, like, you know, comparisons to, to the Death Star and Star Killer. I'm just like, I'm already skeptical of this, you know. <laughs> I think we do, you know, as they're moving towards this 
uh, solar array to intervene to save it. We do find out that Captain Bright is the same species as Kit Fisto, which uh, I think is, pre- is pretty cool. Uh, you know, his <laughs> long lost uh, ancestor, maybe. That would <laughs> you know, after the missiles fail to hit their mark, they are considering, or at least Captain Bright is considering to use their blasters on this object. But Ensign Peoples, P-E-E-P-L-E-S, uh, speaks up, <laughs> and I'm just going to read what he's what he's saying here. Uh, so I thought the name Ens- Ensign Peoples was, was funny, but he's saying, I'm sorry, sir. Even the best gunner in the universe couldn't make that shot, and I would guess I'm barely in the top 10. <laughs> just the confidence is tripping off this guy. Like, even even now, he's just cracking the joke, like, oh, man, I'm just, I guess out of the universe, I'm barely in the top 10. It was just... <laughs> It was a nice little joke there. But I think he's noted he's noted to have like um a high pitched whiny voice. And I was thinking like a guy named Peoples like definitely would have high pitched whiny yes, voice. Yes, he would. <laughs> like I'm sorry, sir. <laughs> <laughs> we missed the target. <laughs> Even the best gunner in the universe can make that job. <laughs> That's one hell of a pilot. <laughs> That's no moon. That's a space station, sir. <laughs> As things kind of have proceeded in the book so far, um, it didn't really end well for the solar array. You know, it's talking about, I think uh, Captain Bright was noting it's hundreds of arms that, you know, reflect sunlight from, I think, Hetzal Prime's three suns. So, you know, that's that's a pretty cool, you know, sorry, twin suns, like, you know, get good. We got the triplet suns around here. But, uh, you know, how those reflect light back down to all the croplands of the system. And then it's struck by this anomaly. And, you know, I think half the arms, the solar, like, arms, the reflectors get wrecked. And the central sphere, where I think up to seven crew members would reside, is now aflame. You know, it's it's in trouble. And I think, fascinatingly enough, I didn't realize this bit of lore about kind of a... I forget the the name of the species of, of Kit Fisto, but basically the... Captain Bright's tentacles, um, he can kind of pick up others' emotions around him, kind of he can sense their emotions, you know, not really force-sensitive, but it's kind of like a, a biological mechanism, and he knows that they're all terrified, you know, because he's saying we have to go in to, to save these people. We don't know if they're aboard, but the fact that seven people could be aboard there and in danger, we, we know what we have to do, and the crew you know, despite their terror, they know that this is their duty. The reason they're here is to save lives, even if it could mean losing their own. And so they're going in at the end to save the array. Or I, I was just blown away, but they, they're not even sure if seven people are aboard this solar array, but they're going in anyway, perhaps to the detriment or the risk of their own lives, which is just, I think they, they kind of say at the end, you know, we're all the Republic, right? And, you know, they kind of agree on that and they go in to save the lives that may or may not be aboard the array. But it was really, you know, kind of just them agreeing that we are all the Republic and this is what we're here to do. It was really striking and a very bold and brave and courageous end to the chapter. Right now, I'm not thinking too optimistically about their chances, just given how everything has gone. But, you know, the past two chapters have ended kind of on a more hopeful note and I'm hoping that it's going to end well for Captain Bright and his crew, but this is how Chapter 6 ends with them going into 
help this solar array. You know, one of the things that I like about the ending, you know, you were talking about the phrase about we are all the Republic and the way that it ends is that, is that in some ways a kind of unifying thing throughout these three chapters. And again, the benefit of seeing it from different perspectives is this notion of duty. And then there's also this notion of connection and unity. And the Jedi have a kind of spiritual understanding of that with the force and you know what we see with Avar Chris sort of meditating and the way that she is you know doing some work to connect and then we get to see with in chapter five with bells at afar and the way that he kind of senses the force web and he feels everybody's emotions and then you get to see in this chapter like the secular version of that which is we are all the republic like they don't have the force to kind of understand themselves as connected in that way or at least the ability to kind of tap into it the way that the jedi do but they do have this phrase they have this this entity the republic that they all belong to and they see themselves as being a part of and like that being the thing that you know gives them a kind of sense of solidarity with these people who may or may not as you said be on the solar array and basically something like we have a duty and obligation to them like like we are them they are us we're all part of this one union and we have to go out and help them so like the, the different interpretations of that the way that these different characters are sort of understanding their connections to and responsibilities for one another i think is really interesting yeah i love that point and you know really it is it has been a theme throughout the book so far you know this is not the first time that the the phrase we are all the republic has has popped up and in like you're you know pointing out here it's just the two different ways or the different ways in which this theme of unity and connection and togetherness from the Jedi to the Republic manifests. It's, you know, it's, it's fascinating to see how it compares from, you know, Jedi and the more spiritual to. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> you look down at the book and I saw people. <laughs> Shut the book. Close it. Throw it in the fire. No. <laughs> no. That's going to be, I need, I, I don't know if there's an image of Ensign Peoples out there, but right now I think he's he's the mascot of the show. <laughs> <laughs> he really is. I hope he doesn't die. Now I need him to survive. <laughs> uh, but a very hopeful note to end the chapter on, and a very hopeful note to end this episode on, divorce. This has been, you know, a kind of a much more uplifting set of chapters to cover with you. So thank you for that. Um, if the listeners wanted to find you and what you do and your work with A Larger View of the Force, could you let them know where they could do so? Yeah, so you can find A Larger View of the Force pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts. So wherever you're listening to this on, odds are you can also find my show. So Apple, Google, Spotify, a bunch of little ones. And then you can also follow the show on Twitter at a larger view pod. Listeners, I will post links in the episode description to all of Devor's works and social medias. Devor, thank you so much again for coming on to talk some Light of the Jedi. This has been a lot of fun. It has been. Thank you very much for having me on. Before we close out today, I'll give our next Search Your Readings discussion question. So far, we've been introduced to two seemingly different types of Jedi. Those with unique connections to the Force, like Avar Chris, and those who act quickly amidst physical tensions, like Loden Greatstorm. What qualities of these new Jedi have stood out to you? I will post the question to Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, comment and send your responses on any of those platforms, or you can send them via email to outerrimreadspod at gmail.com with the subject line, Search Your Readings. 
and thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to follow Outer Rim Reads on social media to stay connected to the show, you can follow us on Twitter at Outer Rim Read Pod and on Facebook and Instagram at Outer Rim Reads Pod. If you'd like to support the show and get access to exclusive merch, stickers, our Discord server, and monthly Star Wars trivia nights and more, you can do so at patreon.com slash Outer Rim Reads. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Gayhod, is hosted by Andrew Gayhod, is edited by Connor Floyd, and it is produced by Andrew Gayhod as well as Simon Van Bakum. We will be back in two weeks with episode 43. So until then, sit back and enjoy. Hey, grab a glass of spotchka and join us over at the holoscreen. They're televising a Jedi Vector airshow.